Welcome to Lend Me Your Ears, a podcast about Shakespeare and politics. I'm Isaac Butler. Today we're talking about Othello, a play in which an immigrant reaches the heights of his adopted society only to be destroyed after marrying outside his race. It's a play in which tensions about gender, skin color, culture, integration, and religion explode into violence. A play in which the truth is often uncertain, even the truth about ourselves. Act 1. When I love thee not, chaos is come again. If there's one thing everyone knows about Othello, it's that it's a play about a black man who's married to a white woman. But Othello is written before the Enlightenment, which burdened us with a system of racial classification and hierarchy that still influences our thinking about race today. Race and ideas about race would have worked a bit differently for Shakespeare's audience. And so it's worth looking at the fact that Othello isn't only black. He's a Moor. Othello's subtitle is The Moor of Venice, and the word Moor, used to refer to Othello, appears roughly 60 times in the play. It's a word we don't have a lot of associations with now. When you hear the word more, you probably think of, well, this play. But in Shakespeare's day, the word had a lot of different connotations. It could refer to Islamic people from North Africa, the area that today contains nations like Morocco and Algeria. It could refer to Muslims in general, because the words Islam and Muslim hadn't yet entered the English language. It could refer to dark-skinned pagans or even European converts to Islam. We used to assume that Shakespeare's London was essentially an all-white city. When I was taught this play, I was taught that Shakespeare had likely never met a black person when writing it. But that may have not been the case. Here's Ayanna Thompson. She's an associate dean at Arizona State University who has written extensively on Othello. We now have new archival evidence that shows that there was quite a bit of, you know, kind of trafficking of humans and different servant types in London. And according to Jerry Broughton, author of The Sultan and the Queen, The Untold Story of Elizabeth and Islam, England had a lot of business relationships with the Islamic world. Elizabeth I, when she comes to the throne in 1558, is very much isolated within the rest of Europe, which is predominantly Catholic. She, of course, is a Protestant. Um, It's the new national religion um, of the country. England is seen as a rogue state. They start to make those connections to the Islamic world because they need trade, but also because it's a way of pushing back against Spain. Those trade links led to a big event in 1600. The ambassador from the Barbary states of North Africa came to England to try to form an alliance with Elizabeth. Alanodi comes uh, in the autumn of 1600. He stays for over six months. He's put up in great palatial surroundings in central London by uh, the members of the Barbary Company. Everybody's writing about him. He goes and he visits Elizabeth twice to develop a commercial and political alliance. Shakespeare's company performed at court twice during the ambassador's stay. It's likely that the ambassador saw Shakespeare on stage, and the visit helped feed an existing craze for stories, ballads, and plays about Moors. Shakespeare was nothing if not a keen businessman with an eye for trends. Maybe that's why, not long after the ambassador's visit, he started to work on a play that combined the vogue for stories about Moors with another popular genre, the domestic tragedy. 
Domestic tragedies are plays in which the protagonists aren't kings or princes or senators, and the settings and problems tend to be familial in nature. They're often stories of husbands murdering their wives, or vice versa. And, since the 19th century, most of our tragedies are domestic ones. But in Shakespeare's time, having a tragic protagonist that wasn't royalty was a relatively new idea. The result of marrying stage moors with domestic tragedy was a story about shifting identities and the mystery of both the self and the other. A story of an immigrant who begins the play as one of the most beloved people in all of Venice and ends it despised and broken, having murdered the woman he loves most in the world. That story goes like this. At the beginning of the play that bears his name, everything seems to be coming up Othello. Although a Moor and an immigrant, he's a general in the Venetian army. He's widely liked, he's got the confidence of the Duke, and he's just eloped with the daughter of a friend of his, the universally beloved Desdemona. But there are problems afoot, problems that he doesn't know about. His ensign, Iago, seems to be loyal and honest, but secretly loathes him. Iago's big grievance is that Othello has passed him over for a promotion in favor of a gentleman and dandy named Cassio, who has no real-world military experience. And what was he? Forsooth, a great arithmetician. One Michael Cassio, a Florentine. A fellow almost damned in a fair wife that never set a squadron in the field, nor the division of a battle knows more than a spinster. So, Iago decides to destroy Othello. First, he alerts Desdemona's father to her marriage. Desdemona's father complains to the Duke. He simply cannot accept that Desdemona could fall in love with a black man, and he believes that Othello must have used witchcraft to win her heart. Othello, however, gets a chance to tell his side of the story. Her father loved me, oft invited me, still questioned me the story of my life from year to year, the battles, sieges, fortunes that I have passed. As a frequent dinner guest, Othello spun his incredible life story of being a child of Moorish nobility, captured and sold into slavery, freed and converted to Christianity, and then his wandering and adventures throughout Africa, where he met cannibals and monsters. Desdemona, it turns out, was pretty into all of this. She gave me for my pains a world of sighs. She swore in faith. Twas strange, twas passing strange, twas pitiful, twas wondrous pitiful. She wished she had not heard it, yet she wished that heaven had made her such a man. She thanked me and bade me if I had a friend that loved her, I should but teach him how to tell my story, and that would woo her. And so they fell in love. Desdemona, summoned to the Duke's chamber, confirms Othello's account. Everyone but her father is relieved to put this issue to bed, because the Turkish navy appears to be on its way to invade Cyprus. Othello is given command over the Venetian navy, and he goes to meet the Turks in battle. But the battle never happens. A storm wipes out the Turks, and Othello, Desdemona, and his men go to Cyprus. Iago hatches a new plan to undo Othello and get the promotion he deserves. He will make Othello believe that Desdemona and Cassio are sleeping together. His plan for doing this 
is pretty elaborate. First, knowing that Cassio can't hold his liquor, Iago gets him drunk. He has a friend pick a fight with Cassio, and when Cassio takes the bait, Othello fires him. Cassio turns to Iago for help, and Iago recommends that Cassio petition Desdemona to get back in Othello's good graces. Our general's wife is now the general. Confess yourself freely to her. Importune her help to put you in your place again. This broken joint between you and her husband entreat her to splinter. And, my fortunes against any lay worth naming, this crack of your love shall grow stronger than it was before. He then uses Cassio's appeals to Desdemona to make Othello suspect her. I like not that. What does thou say? Nothing, my lord. Or if... I know not what. Was not that Cassio parted from my wife? Cassio, my lord? No, sure, I cannot think it that he would steal away so guilty-like seeing you coming. Iago reminds Othello that Cassio was the go-between for Othello's courtship of Desdemona. He next begins to reluctantly share his suspicions with Othello, baiting the hook with protestations about his loyalty to his good friend, forcing Othello to demand he confess his suspicions. Thou dost mean something. I heard thee say, even now, thou likest not that when Cassio left my wife. What didst not like? And when I told thee he was of my counsel in my whole course of wooing, thou criedst, indeed, when didst contract and purse thy brow together, as if thou then hadst shut up in thy brain some horrible conceit. If thou dost love me, show me thy thought. Finally, Iago's wife Emilia steals a handkerchief Othello gave Desdemona and gives it to Iago. Iago tells Othello he saw Cassio with the handkerchief and that he heard Cassio crying out for Desdemona in his sleep. Othello is finally convinced. The two men kneel together and enact a kind of parody wedding ceremony where they vow they will kill Cassio and Desdemona. I greet thy love, not with vain thanks, but with acceptance, bounteous, and will upon the instant put thee to it. Within these three days, let me hear thee say that Cassio's not alive. My friend is dead. Tis done at your request. But let her live. Damn her, lute minx. Damn her. Come, go with me apart. I will withdraw to furnish me with some swift means of death for the fair devil. Now art thou my lieutenant. I am your own forever. In the second half of the play, Othello begins acting erratically, and everyone notices it. He has seizures. He interrogates Desdemona about her handkerchief. He strikes her in front of an emissary from Venice when he thinks she's being disrespectful. He seems to have abruptly changed into another person. Desdemona tries to figure out what is wrong with her husband, but to no avail. Finally, Othello smothers Desdemona on their wedding sheets. Emilia, discovering her mistress has been killed, calls for help. Iago and several guards show up. Emilia reveals that Iago stole the handkerchief, that he's been lying to Othello the whole time. Iago, trying to stop Emilia's confession, murders her. He is then arrested. Othello manages to grab a weapon and holds off the Venetian guard long enough to avoid arrest by stabbing himself and dying. 
Only three people die in Othello. It's a relatively low body count compared to King Lear or Macbeth. But despite this, Othello is profoundly unsettling and provocative. And this isn't just because it culminates in an excruciating sequence of murder and suicide. It's also because the play leaves us with questions that are intensely disturbing. Questions like, why does Iago hate Othello so much? Why does everyone believe Iago all the time? Why does Othello shift from devoted husband to jealous madman in one 15-minute scene? And ultimately, what is it telling us about identity and how it functions? Is this a play about racism, or is it a racist play? Or both? To look at those questions, we have to investigate the history of how Othello has been performed, and how that's changed right alongside our evolving understanding of race. Because it turns out that more than any other Shakespeare play, the way Othello is staged has impacted what we think the play is about and what it's saying. Act 2. Rude am I in my speech. When we encounter Othello today, we're experiencing a play that has changed radically over time and is continuing to change even as its words have stayed the same. Here again is Ayanna Thompson. Othello as a performance piece has changed so much over the 400 years um, that it's it's not the same thing, right? <laughs> and that's what kind of makes it an amazing performance piece, that it not only has changed from 1601, 1603, somewhere in there, when we think it was first written and staged to 2018, not only has it changed in those 400 years, but it has also impacted performance traditions along those 400 years that then cycle back and impact the way that it is staged now. So it's like this weird kind of feedback loop. The play has changed so radically because we have changed, and our ideas of race and performance have changed as well. When Othello premiered, the role was probably played by Shakespeare's business partner and leading man, Richard Burbage. Scholars believe he would have played the role in dark makeup, using prosthetics to change the shape of his face. Part of the appeal of seeing Othello would have been to see a white actor perform as a Moor, something Shakespeare himself toys with in the play. Because it is, in many ways, a play about performing self in narratives constructed by others and by oneself. But it's always a play about impersonation. And of course, on the early modern stage, you would have had a white actor in blackface playing Othello, and you would have had a boy actor with white makeup playing Desdemona. So inherent in the early modern stage was that these aren't necessarily naturalized characters but impersonations of identities. It wasn't until very recently that we stopped seeing blackface Othellos. On film, you can watch Othello be played by Laurence Olivier, Orson Welles, and Anthony Hopkins. This season, the Metropolitan Opera will stage the opera version of Othello without blackface for the first time. Here in the States, the history of Othello is deeply entwined with the history of white supremacy. Here's Kim Hall, a professor at Barnard College and the author of the forthcoming book, Othello Was My Grandfather. The name Othello in America was not unusual as a slave name because it's part of a tradition of kind of humorous naming of enslaved people and taking away their original identity and replacing them with something that 
speaks to you in some way. The second colonial governor of New York had an enslaved boy he named Othello, who may or may not have become the Othello to be part of the colony-wide rebellion. And it doesn't stop there. The first recorded instance we have of a white man donning blackface in a minstrel show? He was playing Othello. You can't discuss what this play is saying about race and identity without grappling with the fact that for hundreds of years, white supremacists thought this play was speaking to them. And here's what they may have thought it was saying. It's a kind of moral tale of, you know, what happens when you don't um, exert control over your wives, when you allow people to just marry for love, helter-skelter, and not think about what it means, you know, um, to marry outside your race. In this view, Othello is telling us that assimilation is impossible, integration is dangerous, intermarriage is a threat. This is a vision of the play where the murderous, quite possibly mad Othello of the second half of the play is his true self, and the brilliant general and orator of the first is a disguise. And the text does kind of support that reading if you're looking for it. But a funny thing happened on the way to the cross burning. Black people began reclaiming this play. And the major inflection point here in the United States was when the brilliant actor and civil rights icon Paul Robeson tackled the role in 1943. Robeson so thoroughly inhabited that role. And if you read about his process and his his emotions while he's playing it, he's very conscious of what it means to be a black man touching a white woman on a stage that has not allowed that. And he's he's very politically conscious actor. He's, you know, all his life working for social justice. So, you know, that history that he brought to it, I think, made it definitive that, it, you know, Othello has to be or should be a large, eloquent black man. Robeson brought such a sense of history and dignity to the role that it began to change how we view the play. And alongside that, black playwrights began writing their own versions of this story. The play changes from a play that that is about the dangers of intermarriage, the dangers of the collisions of cultures, which is, you know, odd for America, since that's kind of what it's all about, um, to a play about what it's like to be an outsider in a dominant culture. In this version, Othello is undone because he crosses a line in marrying Desdemona. Sure. He can lead the Venetian army. He can befriend Venice's nobility and its wealthiest citizens, but he can't marry one of Venice's daughters. Here again is Ayanna Thompson. Like, who gets to be inside? For how long? How much can we use you? And for how long and in what capacity before we decide that actually you're not one of us? And that line moves. And I think that's what's, you know, kind of brilliant about the play is that the yard post is moving consistently. And the yard post is moving consistently now. So I think that's one thing that does tie us across those 400 years in a frightening way. Yet this interpretation is not without its problems, too. After all, it's still a play where the white psychopath bent on destroying his black boss is the most charismatic and entertaining character. And where the actor playing Othello has to hear hate speech and deliver lines shot through with self-loathing and turn into a monster. I hate this play. (laughs) I hate the audience members when they laugh. I hate the actors who are, you know, kind of seem to be enjoying um, saying these vile racist slurs. 
I hate the fact that those poor black actors have to endure it night after night after night. In some ways, to me, it feels like a, a toxic play. At some point, I'm like, why are we returning to these plays? <laughs> you know, why aren't we doing productions where you can see black rage articulated in a way that is like, I'm better than you, as opposed to a production where the black man constantly is like, oh my God, my secret fear is that I'm not as good as you. You know, I end up consulting with a lot of classical actors, and I end up being brought into productions where black actors are feeling very vulnerable when they're playing Othello. And if the theater company isn't set up in such a way where that actor feels emotionally supported, it can be a traumatic event. And <laughs> like, I don't think in the same way that it is for actors who play King Lear. It's a different kind of trauma that we're asking those actors to go through. It's a different kind of trauma because we're asking actors to sink to the depths of racialized hatred and self-loathing. And also because when we go to see Othello today, we tend to treat the characters as authentic, real people. It's a good thing that black actors are no longer deprived of the opportunity to perform Shakespeare. And the same is true for women actors. But when the characters are played by actors of their own race and gender, is it possible some meaning is lost? We think of Desdemona as a woman played by a woman, and we think of Othello as a black man played by a black actor. But that does, in some ways, rob those actors of the kind of explicit ability to make it a performance about identity. I think it's really tricky playing Othello now, the play and the character. Because I think it's about performing identity more than we're able to allow Black actors to do now. When we see Othello and Desdemona played by a Black man and a white woman, we're more likely to see them as authentic humans with stable, coherent identities. But Othello is a play that challenges whether human beings have stable, coherent identities at all. It's a play that asks, what are we at the end of the day? but the stories we tell and the stories that are told about us. Act three, I am not what I am. Othello is a play constructed around and fueled by stereotypes. Both the play and the characters in it use stereotypes to their own ends and understand the world and human behavior through them. But it's also toying with stereotypes, particularly with its audience's own preconceived notions of what a moor would be. You see, there isn't just one set of fixed ideas of what a moor is during Shakespeare's time. Here's Kim Hall. I think what you imagine a moor might be in the 17th century would depend a lot on how literate you are. So you might be familiar with the idea of the noble Moor, who is usually aristocratic from the Ottoman Empire, who um, is of military bearing. You might have an idea of a Moor as a kind of oversexed, overly emotional type of dark-skinned person. So if you're less literate, you might have heard um, ballads about Moors, and particularly those Moors are very dangerous and both duplicitous and murderous. And in the theater at this time, writers are generally following a template set by Christopher Marlowe in the 1580s with his play Tamburlaine the Great. 
After Tamburlaine, stage moors tend to be scheming, tyrannical, bombastic, and filled with rage. Shakespeare's own Titus Andronicus features a character named Aaron the Moor who hews pretty closely to these conventions. But with Othello, he plays with these expectations. In the first couple scenes, we don't even see Othello. What we get instead is the scheming Iago. When Othello finally enters, he's a man of regal bearing, able to diffuse an armed conflict with nothing more than his voice. He's the calmest man in all of Venice. Othello has taken its audience's expectations and turned them on their head. This should be a play, right, where Iago is a Moor and Othello is the white Venetian Christian general. And what Shakespeare does is he says, everybody's been doing this. I'm going to flip it. I'm going to flip that idea. And I'm going to make Iago the Italian. And I'm going to make the general who he brings down a more. Othello, a convert to Christianity, is also not above using negative stereotypes of Muslims when commanding his men. Here's how he breaks up that fight Cassio gets into in Cyprus. Are we turned Turks? And to ourselves do that which heaven hath forbid the Ottomites. For Christian shame, put by this barbarous brawl. Turning Turk meant both to convert to Islam and to take on the stereotypically violent and rash personalities of Turks. Othello clearly knows the expectations of the white people around him. And one way he responds to those expectations is by telling stories. In Act 1 of the play, here's how he responds to the accusation that he's used witchcraft to trick Desdemona into marrying him. Yet, by your gracious patience, I will a round, unvarnished tale deliver of my whole course of love. What drugs, what charms, what conjuration, and what mighty magic for such proceeding I am charged withal, I won his daughter. The only reason why Othello is facing these accusations in the first place is because he's black, and he knows it. So he says, I will tell you a story about my use of witchcraft. And then the witchcraft turns out to be stories themselves. This is a play that's obsessed with storytelling, how stories get their power, and how those stories can be used to harm people. I think there are constantly moments where people are trying to control the stories that are told uh, both about themselves and about other people. And certainly Othello is obsessed with the stories that are going to be told about him. And, of course, the way he frames himself into this Venetian world when not at war, when he first meets Brabantio and Desdemona, is by telling stories about his life. Instead of being trapped in the white narrative of what a Moor is and how he should behave, Othello uses those stereotypes to craft a tale that works to his advantage. One that highlights his noble birth, his worldliness, his experience in combat, and his wisdom. Later, when he interrogates Desdemona about the lost handkerchief, he spins a yarn about its magical properties in order to guilt trip her about losing it. That handkerchief did an Egyptian to my mother give. She was a charmer and could almost read the thoughts of people. She told her, while she kept it, t'would make her amiable and subdue my father entirely to her love. But if she lost it or made gift of it, my father's eyes should hold her loathed and his spirits should hunt after new fancies. 
But the problem for Othello is that he's up against a better storyteller in Iago. Iago knows how to use stereotypes to his advantage. He knows how to use assumptions about Moors to trick people into helping him destroy Othello, and he uses assumptions about women to trick Othello into destroying Desdemona. Here's one of Iago's main arguments in the scene where he convinces Othello to kill her. I know our country disposition well. In Venice, they do let heaven see the pranks they dare not show their husbands. Their best conscience is not to leave it undone, but keep it unknown. Iago is saying that Venetian women are incapable of being faithful. The pranks they're showing heaven, those are their affairs. The best they can manage isn't faithfulness, but the appearance of faithfulness. And it's this moment that begins to turn Othello against Desdemona. Here's Ayanna Thompson. The root of the problem for Othello is that if Desdemona desires him at all, he thinks of that as debased. It's fine if he can believe that she loves him for his parts, his title, and his perfect soul. But if he thinks that she loves him for his sexuality, he just kind of freaks out about that. And so when Iago is like, oh, right, she's got sexual desires and she's going to have sex with these other guys, Othello is worried about that part in particular. In the first half of the play, Othello describes his relationship with Desdemona as one largely about a young woman caring for an old veteran. She loved me for the dangers I had passed, and I loved her that she did pity them. And he also barely talks about sex. When he does, it's to highlight how, as an old man, he isn't very interested in it. Othello even tells the Duke that he wants Desdemona with him, but not because he wants to have sex with her. Vouch with me, heaven. I therefore beg it not to please the palate of my appetite, nor to comply with heat, the young affects in me defunct, and proper satisfaction, but to be free and bounteous to her mind. But once Iago hints that Desdemona might actually enjoy having sex and feel sexual desire, Othello begins to transform. He's quick to rage. He becomes more bombastic and violent. He has trouble expressing himself with words. And he becomes obsessed with sex. Lie with her. Lie on her. We say lie on her when they belie her. Lie with her. That's false. Handkerchief. Confessions, handkerchief. To confess and be hanged for his labor, first to be hanged and then to confess. I tremble at it. What's happening here is that Othello is increasingly resembling the negative stereotypes Shakespeare's audience would have had about Moors. He even begins to sign on to those stereotypes in his soliloquies. Take this speech, which is often cut from the play today, where Othello says that Desdemona must be straying because he is black and therefore can't speak to her in a gentle, courtly way. Haply, for I am black and have not those soft parts of conversation that chamberers have, or for I am declined into the veil of years. Yet that's not much. She's gone. 
Later on, when Othello says that Desdemona's reputation is now as black as his own face, it's clear that he's become convinced that there's something fundamentally wrong and undesirable about his blackness. Storytelling and stereotypes have such power in Othello because it is a play where very little is certain. Othello takes place mostly at night, shrouded in shadows and mystery. In moments big and small throughout the play, characters confess they cannot see what they are looking at clearly. Iago assembles all sorts of evidence for Othello, but the meaning of that evidence is provided by the stories he tells about it. And just like Brutus and Julius Caesar, Othello interprets everything through what he already believes to be true. His most firmly held belief, the one that gets him in the most trouble, is that Iago is honest. Take this moment when Othello notices that Iago is having trouble getting his words out. These stops of thine fright me the more, for such things in a false, disloyal knave are tricks of custom. But in a man that's just, they're close delations, working from the heart that passion cannot rule. He can't tell the lie from the truth because they look exactly the same. Appearances matter greatly in this play. When Iago tells the audience that he's heard a rumor that Othello has slept with his wife, he then says that even if it's just a rumor, Othello must be punished. One character calls his reputation the immortal part of myself. Othello at one point rants that it would have been better for Desdemona to cheat on him with dozens of men in secret than for him to know she'd been unfaithful once. You could say he's adopting the morality of Venetian women, whose best conscience is not to leave it undone, but keep it unknown. Appearances matter so much because the characters are contradictory and their identities are unstable. Desdemona is faithful and true, but the first thing we learn about her is she deceived her father to elope with Othello. Cassio is a dashing lieutenant, but he's also a mean drunk, whiny, and ineffectual. The one thing everyone knows about Iago is that he's honest. But everyone is wrong. Iago keeps telling the audience different stories about why he's destroying Othello. First, it's because Othello passed him up for a job. Then it's because Othello might have slept with Iago's wife. Then it's because Iago himself is in love with Desdemona. And, of course, Othello is somehow the calmest, most centered, eloquent, and wise man in Venice until he becomes the opposite of all of those things over the course of one scene. The play itself is also contradictory and unstable, toying with our assumptions about its genre. Othello uses all of the mechanisms of comedy towards tragic ends. You know the plot of an older man who woos a younger woman, right? That's a comic structure. You know the plot about a girl who tricks her father to marry the man she wants to marry. That's a comic structure. You know the plot where a guy talks to you directly, audience member, and says, I'm going to do these things to trick this guy. That's a comic structure. But both the play and the characters within the play become less complicated in Othello's second half. The play starts acting like a proper domestic tragedy instead of a romantic comedy gone horribly awry. Othello starts acting more like a stereotypical stage more. And Desdemona? Well... She starts out in the first half of the play as very powerful, very independent from her father wanting to marry um, Othello and saying, I'll do this on my own terms. By the end of the play, 
destroyed as a woman who ends up saying, it's okay if my husband hits me and calls me a whore in public. I accept that. Desdemona becomes the devoted, demure wife. In one scene in Act 4, Othello calls her the cunning whore of Venice and throws money at her. And here's how she responds. Tis meet I should be used so. Very meet. How have I been behaved that he might stick the smallest opinion on my least misuse? It's only right before he dies, in his final speech, that Othello seems to realize that this has happened to him. In this moment, the master storyteller again spins a tale, trying to control the narrative of his life and how it is interpreted. He tells them to remember him as a man who loved not wisely, but too well. A man who wasn't naturally jealous, but was moved to jealousy by another. And then, he says this. Set you down this, and say besides, that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and a turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state, I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus. Right after this, Othello stabs himself. In telling this story, though, it's still not entirely clear what the play wants us to think about its central character. Othello has beat a Venetian and traduced the state when he killed his wife. But because he's stabbing himself, he's also the good Christian soldier doling out the punishment. What is Othello at the end of the play? Has he become the ultimate scary figure, which is the despotic Muslim Ottoman Turk? Or is he playing out the fact that he's been the loyal Christian Venetian servant, protecting another Venetian in Aleppo. It's one of those brilliant, brilliant Shakespearean moments that it is, of course, both at the same time. Othello has rediscovered his bothness, which is the source of his power in Venice. They want the fact that he's crossed religions, he's crossed the seas, he's crossed languages. Probably his name, Othello, what is this name? Who is he? You know, where has he learned his languages? All these things, at a certain point, the state, of course, wishes to embrace. When he steps across a certain line, be it political, be it religious, be it sexual, it can trigger, I think, a, a, a recoil, a desire for these fixed essentialist identities. You have to be one thing or the other. Othello is an immigrant who has reached the upper echelons of his adopted home. But as soon as he crosses the line of marrying a Venetian woman, he must be destroyed. Not only that, but he and everyone around him has to become less complex, simpler, more stereotypical. That's how societies often react to change, by strongly enforcing conservative, essentialist ideas of identity. Protecting English culture from immigrants was one of the main rationales behind Brexit. And our current immigration policies are being retooled explicitly to protect a mythical vision of America as a white, Christian nation. In revisiting Othello, that insistence on and struggle against essentialism is what feels so prescient. One of the things about cultural exchange, whether it's peaceful or violent, consensual or colonialist, is that it changes the cultures on both sides. When Shakespeare wrote Othello, England and what it meant to be English was changing because of encounters with Scotland and Ireland and the Muslim world and Africa. 
When we talk about America as a nation of immigrants, what we also mean is that our national identity is always in flux. Othello shows us that there is no such thing as a true identity. There is no essential self. But it also shows us how scary that is. If I don't know who I really am, how do I know what's true and what's false? What's right and what's wrong? Iago harnesses that terror. We know he's lying. But what he's telling everyone else is that he knows the truth. And the truth that he knows is that racist and sexist stereotypes are correct. That there is such a thing as a true self. That identity is coherent and people who challenge that should be dealt with harshly. Given what's happened over the last few years, should we be surprised that everyone believes him? I'd like to thank my guests for this week's episode, Jerry Broughton, Ayanna Thompson, and Kim Hall. You heard Will Sturdivant as Othello, Sid Solomon as Iago, and Emily Gardner-Shoe Hall as Desdemona. Special thanks to David Kasten, John Paul Spiro, and Jason Holfam. If you're a Slate Plus subscriber, you have a bonus episode waiting for you right now, featuring Anand Girdardas and Aisha Harris discussing Othello. If you're not a Slate Plus subscriber, Get with the program already by going to slate.com slash Shakespeare to subscribe. If you'd like to read ahead, our next and final play will be Coriolanus. Let Me Your Ears is produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, a busy and insinuating rogue. I'm Isaac Butler. Thank you for listening.